This is Buy-In, a valuation podcast from Horn Healthcare. What do healthcare providers need to prioritize in this new era of value-based arrangements? I'm Greg Anderson with Horn Healthcare, and today on Buy-In, our guest is healthcare attorney Cindy Reese, a partner with Bass, Berry & Sims in Nashville, Tennessee. Cindy's a nationally recognized healthcare attorney and sought-after advisor on transactions and operational matters, including acquisitions, joint ventures, and the development of value-based alignments among providers and payers. Cindy is also president-elect of the American Health Law Association and will serve as president beginning in June 2021. Cindy, we're happy to have you back on the podcast today to talk about the Stark Law Final Rule and its impact on value-based care and payment arrangements. Thank you so much for joining us again. I appreciate having the opportunity to speak with you again, Greg. So, Cindy, in giving thought to all of this, what has been the initial reaction of your clients to the Stark Final Rules? The... Stark final rules, uh, I guess you could look at them as being kind of two big buckets of changes. Um, Our clients are trying to wrap their heads around exactly what is included in both of them. Starting with the first one, uh, with respect to the new value-based exceptions, I think our clients do appreciate the flexibility that they have been given to develop and implement what are referred to as value-based arrangements without trying to shoehorn those arrangements into a stark exception that really was not designed for the financial arrangement. And we appreciate the fact that CMS and OIG as well in the the anti-kickback final rules um, did state that their intent was to promote innovation and remove those real and perceived regulatory barriers that providers were running into in order to allow them to more effectively coordinate and deliver value-based care with the goal, of course, of of improving the quality of care and the outcomes and the efficiencies, therefore the cost, lowering the cost, but still striking a balance and maintaining safeguards to protect patients and the federal healthcare programs against fraud and abuse. So as our clients are getting accustomed to this new terminology, and working through exactly what a value-based enterprise might look like. They're looking at who can be value-based enterprise participants. How do you put together um, value-based activities to achieve a value-based purpose? It's all that terminology. They're just trying to get their heads around. Um, With respect to the clarifications that were made to the existing terminology and exceptions, I think clients in some instances They are confirming what they thought the term meant. And in other instances, they're going, "Mm, didn't really think that's what CMS meant. (laughs) Um, But they're also looking at, you know, how the exceptions applied to a financial relationship that they might have already had in place. Um, Giving you a few examples of that, um, designated health services, for example. CMS is making it clear that a service that's provided to an inpatient is not deemed to be DHS, if the furnishing does not impact the amount Medicare pays under the inpatient PPS. So that's clear that if a a patient receives an MRI, CT, something like that, and and it doesn't impact what the hospital is paid, then then the definition does not include that service. Um, I think the indirect compensation arrangements definition has been narrowed, which provides 
a little more flexibility to our clients because the result is that fewer arrangements meet that definition. So as a result, you won't have to try to fit into the indirect compensation exception. Um, one of my favorites is what we're referring to as the new exception Z, uh, which of course refers to the section in, this, in the Stark uh, rule. Um, it, it provides a new exception uh, for limited re remuneration to a physician. And um, the criteria are, are helpful and, and somewhat flexible as well. Provides for an annual limit of $5,000, which will be subject to inflationary increases. It covers a payment made to a physician to provide items or services, whether through that physician or through the physician's employees, locum tenens, um, that, that sort of pool of individuals. Mm -hmm. it, it will not cover independent contractors. Um, it must be commercially reasonable and can't exceed fair, fair market value, which of course is where you guys come in to help them with looking at those two mm -hmm. yes. aspects of the exception. And if referrals are required, you must comply with the directed referral um, requirements. It, it does not require documentation and it does not have to be set in advance, which is again, very helpful, creates more flexibility. Yes. And the parties can switch to another exception once these requirements, you know, are met or you're, you're going to go over what this exception allows you to do, but you can meet another exception, then you move to that next exception. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be back in just a moment. Buy-in is brought to you by Horn Healthcare. For over 60 years and with more than 70 dedicated accounting and advisory professionals, Horn Healthcare is a decidedly different firm. Find us online at hornllp.com. And we're back to our conversation with Cindy Reese. So let me ask you, Greg, um, what additional information are valuation firms seeking from clients to evaluate fair market value in the wake of the final rule? Oh, yes, yeah, Cindy, that's a great question. It's one that we're hearing a lot. Uh, we're, we're definitely, I guess, as far as our shop is concerned, we're definitely asking for more information on value-based arrangements to try to understand, you know, to what degree the physician is participating and how much downside financial risk the physician is accepting. And we're starting to ask the question of management and healthcare legal counsel, too. Is fair market value really needed? Perhaps our role is different now in many of these arrangements. In some cases, maybe less about fair market value and more about consulting around equitable distribution of value-based earnings. We've been doing this in the Medicare Shared Savings Program and commercial ACOs for some time. So it's, it's been kind of natural to think about how physicians are compensated for their participation in what the final rule calls a, you know, a value-based arrangement. And, and speaking of these value-based arrangements and downside financial risk with the, with the lower threshold now for meaningful downside financial risk, Cindy, do you think any of your clients are taking advantage of the opportunity to modify their existing financial arrangements to fit within the exception? You know, historically, we have seen providers using um, ACOs, clinically integrated networks, the bundled payments program, and PCMH, couldn't get that out, um, as, as primary models to engage in some care coordination together. And you've seen some post-acute care management entities such as NavaHealth in the Medicare Advantage space. 
These new exceptions open up possibilities of a broad cross-section of providers and suppliers and other entities collaborating in a way that allows them to share risk and improve the quality of care and outcomes and efficiencies. Clients are strategizing, at least the clients we've been engaged with thus far, um, are strategizing on who they could form a VBE with, a value-based enterprise. Mm -hmm. And clearly payers are a critical player in the model. Um, I anticipate that they will be the drivers of some of the new models. Um, it's certainly in their best interest to try to get more in terms of care uh, out of the premiums that, that they are paid. And so I, I see them as playing a pretty significant role. And they, of course, can be a, value, a VBE participant. Mm -hmm. the, the meaningful downside risk exception allows physicians to ease into the assumption of some financial risk in exchange for potential financial gain. Um, the the rule and the new exception defines meaningful as the responsibility to repay or forego a minimum of 10% of the total remuneration or of the total value of in-kind remuneration, such as maybe infrastructure cost that a physician receives under a value-based arrangement. I think we're more likely to try to use the exception now since uh, the final rule moved away from what was proposed as 25% of the mm -hmm. total value. I think that was just too much risk oh, yeah. for physicians who weren't right, quite ready to get into the full um, sharing of risk. Now, it, it is possible some financial arrangements can be modified to fit this exception. However, I anticipate new arrangements will be developed while using some old structures similar to, to what you've seen before, like withholds or incentive payments, repayment requirements, reduction in compensation. And the reason I'm thinking you'll see more new arrangements as opposed to just modifying what's already out there is because some of the requirements in the exception might not have been covered originally. For example, the, the parties need to articulate a value-based purpose. And they might not have done so. Um, of course, you have to actually have something called a value-based enterprise. They might not have actually formed that. Right. Yeah, and, and the individual physician has to assume the risk. And, and many arrangements out there now might be with the practice itself. Um, but here, under this exception, the risk for failure to achieve the value-based purpose of the VBE is one of the criteria. And so I think... Because of the new terminology, you'll have to you'll have to see um, we'll have to see some some new arrangements. Um, I think also the nature and extent of meaningful downside risk, because it has to be in writing before undertaking any value based activities, you're going to have to get that covered. And also, I think while the parties likely had a target patient population in their arrangements, you might see some changes that they might want to make. So um, let me ask you this. Um, how does the final rule affect the way you look at physician compensation arrangements for services in light of what we're all calling the big three? Right. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> the FMV, commercial reasonableness, volume or value of referrals. Do you look at published survey data differently now? Yeah, that's uh, that's a, also another question that, that we're hearing a lot. And as, as we're studying fair market value physician compensation now that the final rule is in place and 
I guess we're we're only two or three days into that now, Cindy. Right. <laughs> so it is a little early, but we are finding ourselves doing a lot of what we were doing before. Um, our valuations of physician arrangements have always considered cost, income, and market approaches to valuation rather than just simply pulling survey numbers. Now, this means that we look at the practices, financial statements, along with the physician's personal productivity, not just in terms of work already used, but also in terms of revenue generated, for example. We also study the practice's overhead structure. And of course, we're looking closely at value-based arrangements because of the very things you just got done speaking about, Cindy. And, and of course, working with healthcare legal counsel and practice management to help us understand whether the arrangements fit into one of the new exceptions. You know, of course, there's so many criteria that must be met and, and, and even perhaps how they can if they're not currently in those arrangements to, to the points you just made. Uh, we're also considering changes, and this is not start necessarily, but uh, from the Medicare Physician Fee Schedule final rule and the Consolidated Appropriations Act and how those changes mm -hmm. are going to impact revenues by provider. Uh, we're, we're going through the process of recasting data by CPT code and running projections to show the changes in revenue that will come out of the work RVU changes from the, the fee schedule final rule and the Consolidated Appropriations Act 3.75% Medicare increase. So to, to your question earlier about surveys, Cindy, you know, you're just not going to find this kind of information in the published survey data. So we, we kind of have to work through that as we go along to just really kind of understand the, the finances now and going forward of the practice. Um, as far as commercial reasonableness, we're not really changing our approach a great deal. We've, we've always, you know, take, for example, practice losses. We've always felt practice losses were not per se commercially unreasonable. Uh, and so we, you know, continue to look at practice losses, but we look at them in light of, of the economics of the practice. And, you know, for example, the stripping out of, of ancillary services out of a practice that was heavily dependent upon ancillaries, you know, those kinds of things factor into things like practice losses. We still use a, you know, a robust questionnaire to ensure that the arrangement furthers the legitimate purpose, business purpose, and is sensible considering the type and scope and specialty and all those things that are identified by, by CMS. And I guess, finally, as it relates to volume of value referrals, we're we're grateful, I'm grateful for the bright lines in the volume of value definitions that we have now in the final rule. So um, are we. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for, for example, the, the clarity that a physician is not considered to be paid to the point you made earlier on in your, in your last answer in accordance with volume of value referrals just because the hospital bills each time the doctor performs a service. Mm -hmm. So those are clarifications that we, we're very glad to see and, and, and and warmly welcome. And as we always have, we, we depend on our colleagues in the health law field to help parse out, you know, payment arrangements that have some correlation between the physician's compensation and the number or the value of his or her referrals. So that's kind of how we're taking a look at it. So, you know, that's, again, it's early on in the process, but that's, that's kind of where we are at this point. This brings us to the end of our time for part one, our conversation with Cindy Reese. Stay tuned for part two, coming soon. Thank you for listening to Buy-In, a podcast from Horn Healthcare. Buy-In is produced by Horn LLP. Stay tuned for more episodes coming soon on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. 
For more about Horn, visit hornllp.com.